0: as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode.
1: Although Alexander's wife, Queen Yolanda, had been pregnant at the time of the king's death, the child was still born, and they had no other children. The failure of the Dunkeld family line spelled disaster for the kingdom. "'Christ born in virginity, succor Scotland and remedy, that state is in perplexity,' wrote the fourteenth-century chronicler Andrew of Wintown, reflecting decades afterward on the turmoil provoked in the kingless state. Between 1286 and 1290 Scotland was in a state of suspended animation— ruled by a council of guardians who attempted to maintain the country until an heir could be found. They eventually settled on Margaret, whose transfer to Scotland was agreed on in the summer of 1290, after lengthy negotiations between the English and Norwegian courts and the magnates of Scotland. Since the rule of a little girl was no remedy for a constitutional crisis, The Scots had persuaded Edward she should be married to the English king's son Edward of Carnarvon, who was also six years old. The marriage would function as a dynastic union, knitting together the English, Scottish, and Norwegian royal lines. The Treaty of Burgham, sealed on July eighteenth, 1290, confirmed the marriage alliance, guaranteeing that the Kingdom of Scotland shall remain separate and divided from the Kingdom of England, and that it shall be free from subjection. Margaret's journey from Norway was not an unusual or dangerous one. Links between Norway and Scotland were close, the kingdoms separated by a short stretch of the North Sea with regular trade routes. The stopping-point between them was Orkney, an archipelago off the highland coast, whose earls owed joint allegiance to the Scottish and Norwegian kings. By the first week of September 1290 Margaret was at sea, and by the third week of the month she had landed at Orkney. Scottish and English diplomatic channels fizzed with news of her arrival, and English diplomats under Antony Beck, the Bishop of Durham, were sent into Scotland bearing precious jewels as gifts to mark the maid's arrival. The English diplomats were never able to present the child with the rich gifts that Edward had intended for her. In the last days of September grim news filtered into Scotland from Orkney. Margaret had died on the island after a week's illness. The cause of her death is a mystery, but it probably derived from acute food poisoning triggered by eating rotten food at sea. With Margaret's death, the line of Dunkeld, which stretched back nearly three hundred years to the reign of Duncan I at the turn of the first millennium, was extinguished. Scotland was truly kingless. THE EFFORT TO FIND A NEW RULER VERY NEARLY TORE THE KINGDOM APART. FROM THE FIRST RUMORS OF HER DEATH, LETTERS AND entreaties FLOWED BETWEEN EDWARD'S COURT AND THE GREAT MEN OF SCOTLAND. A NEWSLETTER WRITTEN BY THE BISHOP OF THE SCOTTISH CITY OF ST. ANDREW'S IN THE IMMEDIATE AFTERMATH OF MARGARET'S DEATH REVEALS THAT THERE WERE WIDESPREAD FEARS OF CIVIL WAR. THE MAGNATES WERE ARMING THEMSELVES AND PREPARING TO FILL THE POWER VACUUM WITH BLOOD. Only a king with such resources and reputation as Edward could assist in preventing a descent into anarchy. "'Let Your Excellency Dane please to approach the border to the consolation of the Scottish people and to staunch effusion of blood, so that the true men of the kingdom can set up as king him who by law should inherit,' wrote the bishop. Without the sort of overarching authority held by Edward, he implied, there could be no legal process to decide upon the new king. As news reached Edward of the maid's death, he was also told Queen Eleanor was suffering from a recurrence of a feverish illness she had first contracted in Gascony during a visit in 1287. She was travelling to meet him at Lincoln when she took to her bed on November 28, 1290, in the village of Harby in Nottinghamshire. Edward rushed to meet her, and was by her side when she died. Eleanor was forty-nine years old. The couple had been married for thirty-six years, and she had borne him sixteen children. Edward grieved very publicly for a wife of whom he wrote the following year, We cannot cease to love. As Eleanor's body was brought back to Westminster in twelve stages, embalmed and stuffed with barley, Edward ordered that large tiered stone crosses surmounted with spires should be erected where her body lay. These Eleanor crosses were very public monuments of mourning, inspired by the Montjoie crosses that had been erected for Louis IX of France. In addition, Edward lavishly sponsored masses to assist Queen Eleanor's soul on its journey through purgatory. Six months after Eleanor's death, the Archbishop of York boasted to the King, somewhat improbably, that forty-seven thousand masses had been sung for his late wife's soul. Edward took the utmost interest in supervising the great cause, the name given to the complex legal case that erupted among thirteen different claimants to the Scottish throne. The case lasted for two years, and boiled down to a choice between John Balliol, the Lord of Barnard Castle in County Durham, and Robert Bruce, an aged nobleman who had served as Sheriff of Cumberland and had accompanied Edward on his crusade. In a condolence letter written on the occasion of the maid's death, Edward described himself as a friend and neighbour to Scotland, but he saw the great cause as a clear opportunity to reinforce his influence in Scottish affairs. He believed firmly in the feudal rights of his crown over the Scottish crown, which had been asserted only sporadically during his dynasty's history. Edward, by contrast, would make every effort to demonstrate that he was the lord and master of all the British Isles. The legal case that eventually found in favour of John Baliol was labyrinthine. Who was fit to judge the appointment of a king? The reluctant decision reached at last by the claimants to the throne was that submission to Edward was the only means by which they could answer the question. But that decision was not taken lightly or easily. A year had passed since the maid of Norway's death before a conference was held at Norham Castle on the border at which Edward's overlordship was recognised by the Scots. By November 1292 the case had been settled and on November thirtieth, Baliol was inaugurated as King John of Scotland in the ancient capital of Scottish kingship at Scone. If Baliol thought that kingship would keep him on a par with his friend and neighbour in the south, he was sorely mistaken. Edward had overseen the election of a vassal, not an equal. Henry II and John had been happy simply to have Scottish kings pay them homage, satisfying themselves with theoretical rather than practical power, and for many generations Scottish kings had enjoyed good relations with the English court, holding English earldoms, most notably of Huntingdon, and serving in English feudal armies. For Edward, however, this was not enough he expected full and public submission, not only in ceremonial form, but in fact. Ten days before his inauguration, Balliol had given his fealty to Edward, swearing in French that he held Scotland from the English crown, and that he would, Bear faith and loyalty to you of life and limb and of earthly honour against all folk who can live and die. On December 26th he had paid homage to Edward in front of twenty-three Scottish magnates. This was not unusual, but in addition to the simple pageantry of kingship, Edward claimed as part of his overlordship a right to hear appeals against the Scottish king's legal decisions. This directly contradicted the state of affairs that had been envisaged in 1290 under the Treaty of Burgham, which, despite projecting a dual monarchy under Edward of Carnarvon and the Maid of Norway, had promised that— the rights, laws, liberties, and customs of the Kingdom of Scotland in all things and in all ways shall be wholly and inviolably preserved for all time throughout the whole of that kingdom and its marches, and that no one of the Kingdom of Scotland shall be held to answer outwith, outside of, that kingdom for any agreement entered into, or for any crime committed in that kingdom, or in any other cause times having changed, Edward saw fit to exercise his authority more vigorously. In a case involving the Scottish magnate Macduff of Fife, who claimed to have been denied his succession rights to lands in northern Fife, Edward summoned John Baliol himself to appear before the English Parliament of Michaelmas 1293. Baliol rejected the English Parliament's right to hear appeals from Scotland, but under threat from Edward he backed down, withdrew his protest, and renewed his homage. It was a humiliation from which Baliol never recovered. The vassal king and all who observed his kingship soon realised that with such a forceful neighbour as Edward the Scottish monarchy was hollow indeed. Edward, however, was overreaching. It was all very well to stamp England's might on the Kingdom of Scotland, but his uncompromising stance crushed Baliol between two irreconcilable positions. The Scottish king was expected to be a sop to Edward's Arthurian ambitions, while simultaneously standing up for the independence of the Scottish crown. The effect would ultimately be to destroy Baliol's kingship, and drive the whole of Scotland into fierce opposition to the English. Far from embedding his authority over Scottish affairs, edward was driving the scots into the arms of the french the conquest of scotland the sea routes across the english channel and along the atlantic coast of france were major trading arteries during the thirteenth century as merchants from the wealthy countries of europe ferried goods between far-flung territories "'risking rough conditions and the peril of the open seas "'to make profits in port-towns and markets "'from Flanders to the Iberian Peninsula and beyond. "'Mercantile activity was constant, "'and traders of all nationalities rubbed regularly alongside one another. "'During the early 1290s, however, "'a fierce trade war broke out among various shipping merchants "'of England, Normandy, Flanders, Gascony, and Castile.' it resulted in running battles and pirate raiding from the sink ports to lisbon in portugal the seaways and estuaries turned dangerously violent as banners of war were raised and private naval battles spilled the blood of all nations into the sea the causes of the shipping war are now obscure trouble began with a scuffle in normandy in 1292 it escalated during the following year until on may 15th 1293 A series of skirmishes were fought between private armies flying English and Norman banners. At this point the seriousness of the disorder demanded government intervention. Edward, who had little desire to be drawn into a national conflict by the activity of pirate traders, made every effort to appease. An English embassy was sent to France with the aim of arranging peace with Philip IV, who had acceded to the French throne at seventeen when his father Philip III died in 1285 after contracting dysentery during an invasion of Aragon. Philip IV viewed Edward from much the same lofty position that Edward viewed the new King of Scotland. He was a handsome young man whose popular epithet, Le Belle, the Fair, he shared with Geoffrey Count of Anjou, the founder of the House of Plantagenet but this handsome demeanour masked a cold, inflexible personality. Dante called him the Pest of France, and the Bishop of Pamiers wrote, He is neither man nor beast, he is a statue. During the course of his reign Philip would persecute numerous groups and subjects that offended his authority. He tortured Knights Templar and suppressed their order. In 1306 he rounded up and expelled the French Jews, although they were invited back by Louis X in 1315, and remained in France until another expulsion under Charles VI in 1394, and in the notorious Tour de Nelle affair he had three of his daughters-in-law imprisoned for adultery, while their supposed lovers were tortured to death in public. This was a man whose intransigence and capacity for ruthless cruelty exceeded even Edward's, and although Edward paid homage to Philip for Gascony in a lavish ceremony in 1286, France would once again prove too small for a Plantagenet and a Capetian king to cohabit peacefully. It was ironic that Edward should be attempting to stamp his feudal lordship on John Baliol at the same time as Philip sought to humiliate him in Gascony. Using the shipping war as a pretext, Philip demanded that he be allowed to pass judgment on a number of Gascon citizens and officials who had been involved in violent attacks. When they were not delivered to him, he summoned Edward to appear before a French Parlement shortly after Christmas 1293. Edward sent his brother Edmund, Earl of Lancaster, to negotiate on his behalf, but Philip negotiated in bad faith. He told the English that if Edward publicly professed to renounce Gascony and hand over towns and fortresses, sealing the bargain by marrying Philip's sister, the eleven-year-old Margaret of France, the French would then hand back their Gascon gains, and drop the summons for Edward to appear before the French Parliament. The English were spectacularly gulled. Why Edward or his envoys would be so naïve as to trust in the unlikely promises of a new French monarch who was brazenly aggressive and expansionist is puzzling. Indeed, so marvellous was it to the chroniclers of the time that they concluded the English king must have been so consumed by lust for the young French princess, that like his grandfather King John, who had fatally undermined his continental possession by his decision to seize the prepubescent Isabella of Angoulême, Edward was prepared to ignore his better judgment. But this explanation fails to allow for the fact that Edward was a hard-bitten politician, keen to explore any political position that would free up the diplomatic channels for his new crusade. Whatever the motivation, the English were fooled. The summons to the Parlement was not withdrawn, but rather renewed and repeated. When Edward refused to humiliate himself before Philip in precisely the fashion that he himself had recently humiliated John Balliol, England and France found themselves once again at war. Marriage plans were shelved. Edward dragged out the old thirteenth-century war plans. He formed alliances and coalitions with princes to the north and east of France, and plotted a direct invasion to defend and consolidate territory in the south. His diplomats, under Antony Beck, began to negotiate with the King of Germany and the magnates of the Low Countries and Burgundy. Cash payments and marriage alliances were promised in exchange for cooperation against Philip. Meanwhile the muster went out for an English invasion force. This plan had worked for Richard I, but conspicuously failed for John and Henry III. It would prove little more successful for Edward, because like many a ruler before and after him, he had grown dangerously overstretched. In October 1294, a force was sent to Gascony under the king's inexperienced nephew, John of Brittany, but it was smaller than had been intended. Troops that were needed in France had to remain at home to keep order in Wales. A month before John of Brittany set sail, a massive Welsh rebellion broke out under Madoch ap Thlewellyn, a distant relative of Llywelyn the Last's. Madoch claimed to be the successor to Llywelyn's titles but in reality he led a tax revolt against a heavy duty that had been levied on movable property in 1292. The final instalment of the tax was being collected from Wales in September 1294, and it came along with a demand for Welshmen to go and fight in Gascony. Madoc joined forces with other minor Welsh princes. Cadnanap Maredith, ap Rhys, and Morganap Maredith were not prominent native magnates, But edward had effectively wiped out the top layer of welsh nobility after the 1282 invasion and there were few other choices madoc's men attacked the new english castles across wales all the major new constructions held out but it was still necessary for edward to divert a great portion of the gascon invasion force to worcester so that they could deal with the welsh this was a severe drain on his resources edward might be the most powerful man in wales but even before the French hostilities began, his hopes of mounting a swift and robust defence of his lands on the continent were choking on the fruits of his mastery in the British Isles. Edward's third Welsh invasion, which began as winter set in, was the largest of the reign. His men marched into Wales in December 1294, sticking to the old tactics of large assaults from Chester to Conway by the Royal Army, while Royalist lords launched semi-independent attacks through the marches in the south. There were minor setbacks during the invasion. The Welsh managed to capture a good portion of the English baggage train, and Edward was besieged during the winter in Conway Castle, which was cut off from reinforcement by heavy floods. Here he was said to have refused his small ration of wine, insisting that it be divided equally among his men, while he drank water sweetened with honey. It was a safe gesture to make, because when the floods receded, the siege was easily relieved. The spring brought victory for the English. On March 5th, troops commanded by the Earl of Warwick defeated Maddox's men in a battle at Maes Moydagh. "'They were the best and bravest Welsh that anyone has seen,' wrote one observer in a newsletter preserved in the Hagnaby Chronicle. But faced with an English war-machine confident in its methods and secure in its infrastructure, they had little chance of succeeding. After Mice Moydog, Edward felt comfortable in venturing out from Conway to lead a tour of Wales. He mopped up the collapsing insurgency in a three-month journey around the Principality. By mid-June 1295, Wales had been subdued and the rebel leaders captured. Victory had once more come with very little serious opposition, but Edward had been forced to spend in excess of £54,000 on the campaign, with a further £11,300 spent on building Beaumaris Castle on Anglesey between 1295 and 1300. He had also lost precious time in his war for Gascony. Time and money were now running pitifully short. Gascony desperately needed reinforcement, and the southern coast of England was attacked by French ships in August 1295. Dover was burned, and several people were killed but when the King addressed his noblemen at Parliament in Westminster that month he encountered a maddeningly familiar attitude. About a quarter of the English magnates declared themselves completely unwilling to serve the Crown on an overseas invasion. The thirteenth century's great complaint rang out as loudly in 1295 as it had in 1214. Gascony was the King's business, not England's. Edward was furious. He imposed harsh financial sanctions against those who would not help him pay for the campaign in Gascony, and ordered a fleet of new fighting-galleys to bolster his coastal defences. But panic was spreading. Rumours began to circulate that a full French invasion of England was already under way. A knight of the household, Thomas Turberville, was discovered to have been spying for the enemy." Watches were kept the length of the south coast from Kent to Cornwall, as anxious men and women scanned the horizons for the flags and sails of a French fleet come to destroy the realm. In desperation Edward turned to a tactic that had always served him well in the past, concessions and consultation. At the end of November he called a vast assembly of barons and bishops, knights and burgesses, men of the shires and representatives of the towns and cities to a parliament it was the largest political gathering edward had convened since he had plotted the welsh invasion and he came in a conciliatory mood promising that no one should end up out of pocket on account of campaigning with the king the writs that summoned the men to what was much later called the model parliament appealed to a sense of national danger The King of France, not satisfied with the treacherous invasion of Gascony, has prepared a mighty fleet and army for the purpose of invading England and wiping the English tongue from the face of the earth. The whole of England then was called upon to come protect the kingdom from the perfidious French, but by the time the country answered the King's summons and Parliament met, the Gascon cause had once again been overtaken by a crisis closer to home. No sooner had Edward restored his rule in Wales than his puppet-king John Baliol was stripped of power in Scotland. War with France had once more to be postponed as Edward turned his attention elsewhere. The war with Scotland sprang from many causes. Chief among them was the King's pride. Edward's desire to put his mark on the affairs of the Northern Kingdom went a long way beyond the assertion of his legal right. As the muster for war in Gascony began in the summer of 1294, he had issued a summons to John Baliol and eighteen other Scottish magnates to provide feudal military service against the French. The war with Wales prevented the summons from taking effect, but it was another example of Edward's rigour in applying his royal rights in Scotland rather than allowing their simple theoretical existence. As Edward grew more belligerent, John Baliol's position in Scotland grew weaker. A man who could not resist Scotland's neighbour, the magnates concluded, was simply not a king. In 1295 they stripped Baliol of power and re-established a twelve-man council to rule the country in his name. It was a glaring failure on Edward's part not to realise that by bullying the Scottish king he would fatally undermine the entire office of Scottish kingship. Perhaps he really could not see the analogy between his treatment of Baliol and the demands being made on him by the French crown in Gascony. Edward's inability to empathize with the pressures brought to bear on his opponents was the cause of most of the rebellions and crises of his reign. In 1295 he managed to drive together two enemies that were to remain in each other's arms for the following 365 years. In February 1296 the Scottish Government ratified a treaty of friendship with France the old alliance was born. Edward's army marched north toward Scotland in February 1296 with the intention of teaching his rebellious vassal kingdom a painful and lasting lesson for its impertinent alliance with the French. The King's arrival brought fuzzy border allegiances into focus. The boundary between Scotland and England was a political and not a cultural one, In a zone of changeable loyalties, there was no clear and lasting border at which one crossed from one kingdom to another, but if the border was vague, the bloody consequences of war were very real. As Edward approached with his army, the Scots sent raiding parties into Northumberland, terrorizing and destroying villages around Carlisle. The English preferred to wait until Easter's festivities were complete before joining battle. Their first assault was on Berwick-upon-Tweed, a border town in the northeast of England that had been endlessly disputed between the two kingdoms, partly because it was an excellent base from which to launch attacks either north or south, depending upon who held it. The Battle of Berwick, like the short, decisive, and violent campaign it began, was a savage and bloodthirsty affair that would live long in the memories of songwriters and chroniclers on both sides of the national divide. It took place on Friday, March 30th, 1296, a month to the day after Edward had arrived in the Scottish borders, and it did not start well. As the tall, white-haired King Edward, not far from his 60th birthday, was busily knighting some young men in the customary pre-battle fashion, the sea's grey horizon was daubed all at once with thick smoke belching from three English ships that had begun the battle prematurely when one ran aground near the town, and was stormed and burned by jubilant Scots. The streets of Berwick were soon painted with blood, as Edward's army, captained by Robert Lord Clifford, a high-born soldier with extensive experience in the border region, advanced to the sound of trumpets. They slaughtered the men of Berwick in their thousands, and were later accused by their enemies of having killed women and children too, including a pregnant woman who was said to have been hacked to pieces. The Scots had mocked the English as they made their preparations for war, but they did not mock them once the fighting began. They were ripped to shreds in the streets, the bodies too numerous to bury. Corpses were thrown down wells and tipped into the sea as the town fell victim to a hideous and terrible massacre. The chronicler Walter of Gisborough estimated that eleven thousand and sixty people were slain before the clergy of the town managed to plead successfully for mercy. After the battle the English diggers who built a large defensive ditch around the captured town were very cheerful. The ditch was eighty feet wide and forty feet deep, and the king had wheeled the first barrow of earth himself. It was a symbol of English strength and victory, and the workers sang a gleeful song as they worked. The chronicler Peter Langtoft recorded fragments of their verse. "'Scattered are the Scots, huddled in their huts, Never thrive will they.' "'right if I read, they tumbled in tweed, "'that lived by the sea.'" This was the manner of Edward's conquest of Scotland. Edward's army numbered around 30,000 strong, and he marched it through the northern kingdom, killing all who opposed him. Mockery and insults flew. The Scots called the English tailed dogs, because it was common knowledge in the Middle Ages that Englishmen had tails. But the English had something more powerful than jibes, a sophisticated war machine that the Scots failed utterly to match. After the rout of Berwick, Edward received a message from John Baliol renouncing his homage in bitter terms. News reports came from other parts of the border region of burning and slaughter in the fields of Northumbria. Scottish raiding parties apparently repaid English atrocities by burning 200 schoolboys alive in a church. A point was fixed for the next engagement when three prominent Scottish earls seized the castle at Dunbar, an ancient stone fortification perched on a rocky outcrop on the east coast of Scotland that had been a castle site since Roman days. Edward sent the Earl of Surrey north to besiege it. When Surrey was attacked by forces sent by Baliol, the result was another humiliating rout for the Scots. The three earls in the castle garrison were captured, along with numerous barons, bannerets, and knights. Peter Langtoft wrote, The earls were sent to the Tower of London, others were sent to different castles, two by two, mounted together on a hackney, some with their feet fettered in carts. It was a dismal way for prisoners to be transported, and a potent symbol of the crushing defeat that Edward was inflicting on the Scots. After Dunbar, Scottish resistance melted. The short and largely unhindered English campaign lasted twenty-one weeks. Edward paraded ceremonially about the kingdom, taking his troops as far north as Elgin and Banff. Much of the Scots' brittle defence must be ascribed to the weakness of John Balliol. In a process that was split over two dates and four locations, July 2nd and 10th, 1296, at Kincardin, Stracathro, Brechin and Montrose, Balliol was publicly and ceremonially humiliated. His coat of arms was ripped from his tabard or short overcoat, for which he earned the Scottish nickname Tomb, Empty Tabard. He was sent to join the captive earls in the Tower of London. And most devastatingly of all, Edward's men took the government records from Edinburgh and all the Scottish royal regalia, including the sacred enthronement stone from Scone, and brought them to London. The stone of destiny was carried south to Westminster Abbey and incorporated into a special coronation chair. Plantagenet power would henceforth be transferred through a piece of furniture containing Scottish kingship's most revered relic. Instead of installing a new king in Scotland, Edward decided that he would rule directly as he did in Wales. Hoping that an English victory would place him on the throne, The heir and namesake of Robert Bruce, who had confronted Baliol in court for the kingship, had fought in Edward's army. Now he was contemptuously dismissed. "'Do you think we have nothing better to do than to win kingdoms for you?' Edward asked him. A gloriously reconstructed berwick was to be the centre of English power, beginning with a parliament held in the town at which thousands of Scots travelled south to swear their fealty directly to Edward. A new network of English governance and administration was imposed under the direction of the Earl of Surrey. As he handed over the seal of Scotland to Surrey, Edward joked, A man does good business when he rids himself of a turd. The Scots had been clinically disposed of. At last, after two years of firefighting, Edward was once more ready to take the fight to France. Crisis Point Parliament met at Salisbury in February 1297. It met to face a king who was determined that after years of delay and distraction his war against Philip IV of France should finally be realised. That would take money, and money took consensus. "'What touches all should be approved by all,' was Edward's new motto when summoning gatherings of his political community." and what Edward demanded at parliaments now really did touch everyone in England. The French situation required immediate action. After several years of diplomacy, Edward had stitched together a coalition of northern allies, which had been completed the previous month, when the twelve-year-old Count of Holland was married to Edward's daughter Elizabeth while the court was in Ipswich. Holland joined the King of Germany, various Burgundian Lords, and the Counts of Gelders and Flanders in coalition and They could not begin their action against Philip too soon. Gascony was in terrible danger on January thirtieth. English forces under the Earl of Lincoln had suffered a disastrous ambush and defeat between Bayonne and Bongarde. Urgent relief was needed unfortunately for edward the parliamentary gathering at salisbury was hardly hungry for further glory rather the mood he encountered was one of anger exasperation and stubborn refusal to cooperate in funding yet another expensive war england was racked by disaffection every estate had suffered edward's onerous demands for war funding and by the late 1290s spending had run wild even before the scottish campaign was accounted for Recent war costs had amounted to something in the region of £250,000. Edward had incurred debts of at least £75,000 just in assembling his Northern Coalition on the continent. The actual business of campaigning in France and Gascony was going to cost far more. Edward's taxes had been regular and extremely severe. Massive customs duties, known popularly as the mal-tote, bad toll, were levied on wool, driving down the price paid by merchants to ordinary farmers and suppliers. Two heavy taxes had been raised in 1295 and 1296. Since 1294, royal officials had been seizing food and equipment in a program of forced requisition known as the prize, seizure. "'Many were the oppressions inflicted on the people of the land,' wrote the northern chronicler Walter of Gisborough, the final exactions had hit the whole country hard, and the clergy were first to refuse to cooperate any further. Since the death of Peckham on December eighth, 1292, the English church had been led by a new primate, Robert Winchelsea, a top-ranking intellectual and academic, with a temper and sharpness of mind to match Edward's own. Using as his justification a papal bull issued by Pope Boniface the Eighth that condemned kings who taxed the church. Winchelsea led the English clergy into outright refusal to grant Edward any financial assistance for his French campaigns. Edward flew into a fury, declared every member of the English clergy outlawed, and sent his officers across the country to seize their temporal property. "'No justice was dispensed to the clergy, and clerks suffered many wrongs,' wrote Walter of Gisborough. The religious were also robbed of their horses on the King's Highway and got no justice until they redeemed themselves and got the King's protection. It was a minor victory for Edward, but soon he was bedevilled by further resistance. At the Salisbury Parliament the King asked his magnates to fight in Gascony while he led the campaign in northern France. His brother Edmund, who had led an English expedition to defend the southern duchy in early 1296, had died the previous summer. Edward intended to attack Philip from two points, and this necessarily required a division of his forces. It was a tactic that had been suggested twice before in 1294 and 1295, and on both occasions there had been pockets of discontent or refusal. Barons and knights could be persuaded to fight alongside the king, But to be sent to fight in a foreign land on their own was felt to be beyond both the call of duty and their legal obligation. In 1297 Edward was faced with mass desertion. Led by Roger Bigard, Earl of Norfolk and Marshal of England, the magnates put it to him that he had no right to demand feudal military service of them in Gascony when he himself intended to fight in northern France. Bigard's argument was particularly pertinent, because, as he pointed out, in his office of earl-marshal he was obliged to serve alongside the king, not independently of him. Walter of Gisborough recounted their exchange. "'With you will I gladly go, O king, in front of you in the first line of battle, as belongs to me by hereditary right,' he said. "'You will go without me too with the others,' Edward replied. "'I am not bound, neither is it my will, O king, to march without you,' said the earl. Enraged, the king burst out so it is said with these words, By God, O earl, either you will go or you will hang. By the same oath, replied Norfolk, I will neither go nor hang. Bigard had touched the heart of the matter, for all the king's might and will he was bound by his own law, which stated clearly that his barons were not obliged to serve without him. Edward was furious, and he pressed ahead with his attempts to send aid to Gascony, and plan a campaign in northern France. He impounded clerical property, and called in all debts owed him by the lay magnates. For their part some of the clergy and four of the most important nobles, the earls of Norfolk, Hereford, Arundel, and Warwick, dug in their heels and refused to cooperate with war preparations. Parliament broke up in March 1297 and was recalled to meet in Westminster in July. By then, Edward had made peace with Archbishop Winchelsea and some of the earls. It was agreed that he could levy a tax in return for a reissue of the Magna Carta and the Charter of the Forest. On Sunday, July 14th, the King stood on a wooden stage outside Westminster Hall and spoke to large crowds of his subjects. He pleaded his case, acknowledged that he had made mistakes, but insisted that he acted only for the good of the country. The chronicler Peter Langtoft reports that he told his listeners, I am castle for you and wall and house. Archbishop Winchelsea stood beside the king in tears as Edward proclaimed that he was going to France to fight and asked everyone present to swear allegiance to the thirteen-year-old Edward of Carnarvon in his absence. Not everyone was convinced. The earls of Norfolk and Hereford, who had been dismissed from their pre-eminent military offices of Marshal and Constable of England, remained intransigent. They began to compile a list of grievances, known as the remonstrances. In August, in belligerent desperation, Edward ordered another harsh tax on the church and a general levy of an eighth of movable income, and sent out orders for the seizure of £50,000 worth of wool sacks from the country. He claimed that the measures were justified in Parliament. His opponents snorted derisively that this Parliament amounted to no more than the people stood about in his chamber. On August 22nd the Opposition Earls burst into the Exchequer at Westminster to forbid the collection either of wool or of the Eighth, and they raged against a King who they said was tallaging them like serfs. The country was slipping rapidly towards civil war. With the realm seemingly on the brink of chaos, Edward left for the continent. It was an extraordinarily bold move, but he was not prepared to wait at home while Gascony slipped from his grasp. He sailed for Flanders to begin the northern part of his French invasion on August 24, 1297. His campaign, long anticipated, turned out to be a futile mess. Despite repeated promises, some of his expensive allies proved less than willing to fight. The King of Germany failed to send help, and Edward's sailors from East Anglia and the sink ports proved happier to fight among themselves than to fight the enemy. Those Flemish allies who did play a part were defeated by Philip IV at the Battle of Werner the week before Edward arrived. Soon after landing on the continent, Edward was pinned down in Ghent, where there were riots against his leadership. Not long after that, word came from the East that the King of Germany was abandoning the cause altogether. The Coalition collapsed with all the speed, if not quite the same drama, as the unravelling of John's Northern Alliance at Bouvines more than eight decades before. It was expedient, as the autumn set in, to sue for peace. A truce was announced in October, and cemented with an agreement for a two-year suspension of hostilities at the end of January twelve ninety-eight. The peace with France might have heralded a much-needed period of stability and recovery from the demands of war, but once again events in Scotland intervened. While Edward was overseas, a rebellion had broken out against the Earl of Surrey's Berwick administration. On September eleventh, 1297, a rebel Scottish army had routed forces under Surrey's command at Stirling Bridge, a brilliantly chosen battle-site about one hundred miles north of Berwick, at a crossing of the River Forth. Surrey's leadership had been panicked, lazy, and ineffectual. He and his men were undone by an army led by William Wallace, a common robber and brigand, but a genuine popular hero, who had dismissed English negotiators before the battle with the words, "'Go back and tell your people that we have not come for the benefit of peace, but are ready to fight, to avenge ourselves, and to free our kingdom.' Wallace's arrival at the head of the Scottish Rebellion in 1297 briefly united the Kingdom of Scotland. Wallace was knighted by his countrymen, and declared sole guardian of Scotland in the absence of John Balliol. He led a movement dedicated to fighting to the death for the cause of reclaiming Scottish kingship from the southern usurpers. Meanwhile, south of the border at York, Edward faced a May Parliament. In a spirit of reconciliation, he appeased the political community by promising inquests into ministerial abuse and agreeing to uphold the reissue of the charters that his son's regency government had granted the previous autumn. Edward issued the confirmation of the charters, sealed on October tenth, twelve ninety seven, after news had filtered south of Wallace's victory at Stirling Bridge. The confirmation restated both the Magna Carta and the Charter of the Forest now both documents of legendary status, and added several new clauses, including the abolition of the maltote duty on wool, and acceptance that any future tax might be taken only with the common assent of the realm. On the back of the confirmation, Edward's government had also agreed to stop treating the earls who had opposed him with his own deep-felt rancour and indignation. The May Parliament met in the midst of what was already a highly militarized situation in the north. The Exchequer had been moved north from London to York, and was distributing funds to muster an army of more than thirty thousand at Roxburgh. They marched at the end of June. Problems with supplies meant that there was more wine than food. Before long the Welsh and English contingents in the infantry were fighting each other. Without the naval support they had enjoyed in Wales, The vast armed force marched hungry as it pushed north, all the while William Wallace lay low somewhere in the Scottish hills, falling back and destroying crops and supplies as he went, drawing the English deep into the Scottish interior, and waiting for his moment to confront them. Edward was on the verge of falling back to Edinburgh when he learned that Wallace was camped at Callender Wood near Falkirk. He marched his army overnight to meet the Scots early in the morning of July 22, 1298. During a night spent in the open, the king's horse trampled him and broke two of his ribs. It was a painful reminder of the unpredictability of battle. Antony Beck held a morning mass as dawn's weak light broke on a misty battlefield. Across a patch of boggy ground they saw the Scots arrayed for battle before Callander Wood, in highly defensive formation. Wallace had his men in four shiltrums, hedgehog formations with long spears bristling outward. Battle was destined to be fierce and bloody. Edward attacked the Scots from two directions, splitting his battalions around the bogland in front. The earls of Norfolk, Hereford, and Lincoln led an attack from the west, while Antony Beck struck from the east. The Scottish cavalry, not incorporated in the shiltrums, fled the battle. MEANWHILE THE ENGLISH SPLIT THE SHILTRUMS OPEN BY FIRING ARROWS AND CROSSBOW BOLTS AND THROWING STONES. ONCE THE FORMATIONS WERE BROKEN, THE SCOTTISH DEFENSE DISINTEGRATED, AND A FEARFUL rout FOLLOWED. AS MANY AS TWO THOUSAND INFANTRY WERE KILLED ON THE ENGLISH SIDE, SLAUGHTER RAINED DOWN UPON THE SCOTS. THE BATTLE WAS A HUMILIATION FOR WILLIAM WALLACE, BADLY DENTING HIS MILITARY REPUTATION. But the escape of the entire Scottish nobility, as well as of Wallace himself, meant that despite the rivers of blood that fed the bog at Callender Wood, it could not be counted alongside Dunbar as a total victory for the English. Weak, hungry, diseased, and divided, Edward's army was in no condition to keep the field. Tensions which were exacerbated by Edward's division of captured Scottish estates still existed between the King and the Earls of Norfolk and Hereford. The best the king could do was to fall back to Carlisle, sending an unsuccessful manhunt deep into Scotland in search of the young earl and claimant to the throne, Robert Bruce. RELAPSE Edward, at sixty years old, was tall and imposing, and all the more striking once his dark blond wavy hair had turned white. Always the archetypal virile knight, he continued to add to the large royal family when he finally married Philip IV's young daughter Margaret of France in 1299, fulfilling his obligations under the peace made in 1297. The seventeen-year-old Margaret became the first French Queen of England, and she was a good companion for the energetic King. After their wedding at Canterbury she accompanied him back to Yorkshire, where in June 1300 a son was born. The boy, Thomas of Brotherton, was named after St. Thomas Becket, to whom Margaret had prayed during her labour. A vast household was set up for Thomas and his brother Edmund of Woodstock, who was born the following summer. In keeping with the Queen's extravagant love of fashion and jewels, the princes grew up in elaborate finery. As babies they slept in ornate cradles, draped in scarlet and blue. More than fifty servants attended their household, where they ate and lived well, learning the arts of noble life in the most luxurious surroundings that a doting old man, who had fathered fourteen times before, and an enthusiastic young woman with a feel for the extravagances of European aristocracy could provide. But although Thomas of Brotherton and Edmund of Woodstock grew up in luxury and comfort, they were not the most important of the royal children. That honour fell to Edward of Carnarvon, the eldest surviving son of Edward's first marriage to Eleanor of Castile. In 1300 Edward of Carnarvon was sixteen years old, a fine age to begin adopting some of the responsibilities of kingship. For all the trauma of the 1290s, the boy reached the critical stage of early manhood at an easier time than his father had. Peace had been reached with France— Wales, his own principality, was largely subdued, with the ramparts of Master James's castles beginning to loom over the horizon as a symbol of permanent English mastery. Among the barons there was still some discontent, but one major source of friction was smoothed in 1302, when a reconciliation was staged between Edward I and Roger Bigard, the Earl of Norfolk. In its place a series of highly complex disputes over jurisdictions and privileges developed, between King Edward and his erstwhile friend and close adviser Anthony Beck, the Bishop of Durham, who had been central to the pursuit of the Scottish wars. Edward confiscated Beck's lands in 1305, and showed that he retained the appetite to dominate any magnate, lay, or ecclesiastical who crossed him. But Scotland still made trouble. English armies were raised to offer battle in 1300, 1301, and 1303, but the Scots had learned their lesson at Falkirk. They refused to fight, and Edward's capacity to impose a Welsh-style settlement on the Northern Kingdom was severely limited. There were successes. The young Robert Bruce, grandson of the claimant in the Great Cause, defected to the English in the winter of 1301 to 1302, and William Wallace was captured in 1305 and violently executed in London, and his tarred head was stuck on a spike on London Bridge. But Scotland still refused to submit. A new vision, new leadership, and new life were needed at the head of English government for the campaign to move on. Was Edward of Carnarvon prepared for all this? Certainly, the heir to the throne was a strong, athletic young man who had inherited his father's capability on horseback. He was also a keen adherent of family mythology. In 1301, he commissioned a picture of the martyrdom of Thomas Becket for Chester Castle. The following year he received as a gift an illustrated life of Edward the Confessor. These signs of respect for Plantagenet traditions were not enough to balance the growing fears that Edward of Carnarvon lacked the strength that had made his father such a successful king. That he was not a man for tournaments suggested that Edward's love of the front line of military skirmishing had not passed on to his eldest surviving son. There were suspicions around court from 1300 that a young companion known as Piers Gaveston was creating a distraction inappropriate to the bearing of a Plantagenet prince. Gaveston encouraged a streak of brattish impetuosity in the prince that others found hard to bear. In 1305 the young Edward got into an argument with the king's chief minister, Walter Langton, in which he used such gross and harsh words to the treasurer's face that the king threw him out of the court for several months. Worrying, though these things were, nevertheless in 1306 it was clear that Edward of Carnarvon had to be thrust to centre stage. Uproar broke out once again in the northern kingdom, this time occasioned by the vicious murder of John Cummin, the Lord of Badenoch and erstwhile guardian of Scotland, who was stabbed to death in front of the altar at the Franciscan church in Dumfries. The murderer was none other than Robert Bruce. Having turned coat to join the English in 1302, in March 1306 he had himself crowned King Robert I of Scotland in Schoon Abbey. The Scottish wars had begun once again. As Edward made preparations to go to Scotland for yet another campaign, his health began to fail him. When Robert I was crowned, Edward I lay sick in Winchester. From late spring 1306 he was being transported by litter. Without delay, Edward of Carnarvon began to receive the accoutrements of power. He was granted Gascony in April 1306. At the Festival of Whitson, seven Sundays after Easter, he was knighted at Westminster, where he and three hundred other young men were belted as knights in a ceremonial passing of the torch to a new generation of Englishmen. The ceremony was known as the Feast of the Swans, because after the meal Edward had a pair of golden swans brought before the assembly. The king promised in Arthurian fashion that he would not rest until he had avenged himself on Robert Bruce, and that once he had been avenged he would lay down his arms in Britain forever, and travel to the Holy Land to fight the infidel. Young Edward agreed, swearing a similarly Arthurian oath that he would not sleep two nights in the same place until the Scots had been defeated. All the rest of the knights swore their oaths over the golden swans, and to demonstrate their seriousness, forces under the king's cousin Émer de Valence were sent north to assert English justice once again over the rebellious Scots. As he travelled once more to Scotland, Edward I knew he was getting old, and that he had run out of time to finish the job of uniting Britain under one crown. The pursuit of Bruce over the next two years was to be among the most savage events of his life in which earls, bishops, and women were imprisoned and executed in cruel and humiliating fashion. Yet it was not enough. While the old king's men struggled hard without success to bring Bruce to justice, his son and heir continued to disappoint him. Violent arguments raged between them, particularly over the son's inordinate favouring of Piers Gaveston. On July 7, 1307, a Friday afternoon, Edward I. died at Burby sands on his way north with another massive army. Death came rather pathetically, as his servants attempted to lift him out of bed for a meal. He had been ill for many months, and despite a valiant attempt to mount his old war-horse and lead troops out of Carlisle at the end of June, he was physically shattered by a lifetime of warfare, uncompromising politicking, and energetic leadership. He was sixty-eight years old, and a shadow of the man he had been even two years before. His son, meanwhile, was nowhere near the war zone, preferring the comforts of southeastern England, from which he had been forced to send his friend Gaveston into exile on the king's orders in May 1307. In life Edward had been a leopard and a lion, a builder and a hammer. In death he passed into the realms of legend, like his hero Arthur. He had done more to enhance the mastery and majesty of the Plantagenet crown than any king since Henry II. He had established English mastery over much of the British Isles, and defended what remained of the Plantagenet dominions overseas. He had overhauled England's law and institutions, and regularly purged corrupt officials as the price for continued war finance. He had pandered to popular prejudice in 1290 by expelling the Jews. Although he had driven several of his great barons to the brink of armed insurrection, civil war had been averted, and the prestige and position of the crown had never once slipped to the depths it had plumbed under his father. Of course, everything came at a cost. Edward had stamped his mark on Britain by nearly bankrupting the country and by exercising kingship with appalling cruelty and prejudice. He left the crown with crippling debts of around two hundred thousand pounds. Even by the standards of the age he could be a violent and coarse individual. England groaned and grumbled beneath the financial constraints he had imposed upon it. The Scots and the Welsh darkly resented the overlordship he had stamped on them from above. But it was not long before England grew bitterly to rue the leopard's passing. Part 5 Age of Violence 1307-1330 1307-1330 Oh, calamity! To see men lately clothed in purple and fine linen appear now in rags, And bound in shackles shut up in prison! The Life of Edward II The King and His Brother You bastard son of a bitch! You want to give lands away? You who never gained any? as the lord lives were it not for fear of breaking up the kingdom you should never enjoy your inheritance these according to the inventive chronicler walter of gisborough were the words hurled at edward of carnarvon by his father edward i during one of their final arguments in february 1307 according to gisborough the young edward had approached the king through an intermediary with a request to grant away the county of Pontier to his close friend, confidant, and fellow knight, Piers Gaveston. Pontier had been brought into the Plantagenet family by Eleanor of Castile, young Edward's much-mourned mother. In fury the old king had attacked his son, first with words and then with his hands tearing out clumps of the young man's hair before throwing him exhausted out of the royal presence. "'Was this story true?' Certainly there were those who were prepared to believe it. Edward of Carnarvon was a curious young man. In some ways he was the image of his father, tall and athletic, a skilled horseman, a good-looking plantagenet prince without his father's lisp or his grandfather's droopy eye. He was a handsome man and strong in body and limb, wrote the author of the Anonymal Chronicle. But he fell short of the qualities and style of his father, For he was concerned not with deeds of chivalry or prowess, but only with his own desires. Despite his regal good looks, it was clear from the very beginning of his reign that he was a very poor candidate for kingship. This was a pity, inasmuch as when Edward II acceded to the throne, he inherited a very advantageous set of conditions. His father's two most troublesome noblemen, the earls of Norfolk and Hereford, had recently died. The greatest remaining earls, Thomas, Earl of Lancaster, and Gilbert, Earl of Gloucester, were Edward's cousin and nephew, respectively. Archbishop Winchelsea of Canterbury was exiled as a result of a dispute with Edward I in 1306, and Walter Langton, the royal treasurer with whom Edward had clashed the previous year, was swiftly fired, deprived of his lands, and imprisoned. There was an imposing debt of around 200000